John uh, and the Gospel of John in chapter 1. John chapter 1. Tonight my title is this, The Word Became Flesh. The Word uh, Became Flesh. Really, I'm just going to be preaching verse 14 in this chapter, uh, but just for the sake of of context and to help us appreciate and understand what's going on in verse 14, we're going to read the first 14 verses. So John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's our text. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you bow with me for a short prayer tonight? Father, as we come to your word, give us the grace and the understanding we need to receive it. What we do not know, use your word to teach us. What we do not have that you want us to, use your word to give us. And what we are not yet, Use your word to make us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So it's three days until Christmas. And and when we think about Christmas, at least in my mind, the images that arise are often images of comfort. I think of a fireplace when I hear the word Christmas. I think of being with family. I think of, I don't even drink Coca-Cola, but I think of Coca-Cola advertisements with Santa Claus. That comes to mind. I would, I would think of chestnuts roasting on an open fire, but I actually don't know what chestnuts look like. And I've just, it's just now occurred to me, I've never Googled that, so I can't imagine that. I think of eating too much food, spending time with, with friends, travel getting caught driving on the highway in snow or many, many things. And none of those images are bad, of course. We think of the family and the food and, and our, our own cultural expressions of the things that we do during Christmas time. And those are all good and they're all fine. I'm not against any of that. But uh, there's something a little bit different here uh, in our text There's something not so cozy, not so 
uh, comfortable about the reality that John describes in verse 14. Jesus' incarnation is really what we remember at Christmas, isn't it? As Christians, if we look at the basis of our own calendar. But there's a lot of uncomfortable truths behind Jesus' incarnation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not putting a damper on your Christmas spirit. Christmas is about good news. The message of Christmas is joyous, and it is comforting, and it it does bring hope. But the best news always invades bad spaces, right? Uh, If you scream at the the top of a skyscraper that the firemen have arrived, everybody's going to look at you like you're crazy. But if the building happens to be on fire, then it's good news. Why? Because good news invades bad spaces. And while the truth of the incarnation is good news, there's some very uncomfortable backstory to it. You see, the backstory to Christmas is that there is a distance between us and the God who created us. While the message of Christmas is that God has invaded our world, invaded enemy territory, as it were, to save his enemies, as Lewis said, the backstory to that is that we are God's enemies. That things are not okay between us and God. That the most fundamental relationship we were created to need has gone completely awry. It's not that we're totally disconnected from God, but rather it's that we have rebelled against him and broken and severed our good relationship with him. That's the backstory for Christmas that there's a distance between us and God. But the message of Christmas, the good news that invades this very dark space, is that Jesus has come to bridge that distance. That Jesus has come to to repair that relationship by revealing God and saving us. Now you'll notice that John begins a little bit differently than the other gospel accounts. Mark begins with Jesus' ministry on earth. Luke and Matthew begin with the circumstances of, that were surrounding Jesus' birth on earth. But John doesn't begin on earth, he begins in heaven. And it turns out that to fully grasp what Christmas is about, we don't begin on earth, but we begin in heaven. And perhaps there's no better summary of the meaning of Christmas than what we read in verse 14. This single verse, this single statement, like all of John's gospel, is as profound as it is simple. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on, on the gospel of John, says that while the gospel account is deep enough to drown an elephant, it is shallow and simple enough for a child to play in. And I agree with that analysis, but I want to say that's even particularly applicable to what we have in verse 14. That the beauty of this statement, the beauty of this one incredible reality that the word became flesh, 
It's deep enough we could never exhaust what it means, but simple enough that we can all believe it and understand it. So while we're never going to say everything that could be said about this amazing concept of incarnation, I do want to at least say a few things. You know, if somebody, if a preacher comes up here with the Bible, you expect him to at least try to say a few things, right? And that's what we'll do tonight. We're not exhausting verse 14, but we are going to walk in the shallows for just a few moments. So tonight we're going to let this this brief verse in John's prologue to his gospel show us how Jesus' coming closes the distance between us and God. Notice, notice the first idea. Notice, number one, that John refers to Jesus as the Word. Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God and, and is God, and this Word who is with and, and is at the same time God is the one who becomes flesh in verse 14. He's talking about Jesus. John's whole gospel is about Jesus. He is the one that the apostles looked at, the one they beheld and saw grace and truth. So he is the Word, and he is made flesh. But notice that he is the Word. Think about what this, what this means. Now, there's, if you want to look at how the Bible uses this terminology, we have a lot of different examples, okay? Uh, sometimes a word from God can be a specific uh, prophetic event, you know, where Elijah tells um, the wicked King Ahab in the northern kingdom that it's not going to rain, and then it doesn't rain. Well, that was a word from God. Uh, other times, it's not a prophetic event, but a writing, maybe like the, the, the law given to Moses, or maybe even some of the things that Moses or, or David or the prophets wrote down. Sometimes the word refers to scripture or scriptures. Sometimes the word means the gospel, and that's how Paul usually, uh, most often uses the term. When he talks about the word from God or the word of Christ, he's talking about the message about Jesus. But John isn't referring to any of those things here, lest we get confused. Jesus is not another prophetic statement. Those were, were uttered and then they were done. Jesus is not a writing. This isn't metaphor. He's a real, he's a real person. And, and the writings, even the scriptures, began to exist at some point. Jesus did not begin to exist, but the Bible did. John is not telling us that Jesus is just another word from God. Yeah, the scriptures, the Bible is a word from God. The prophecies are a word from God. The Psalms are a word for God, from God. But none of those things you could say that they were God. <laughs> Jesus is a different kind of word. The word of God, not just another word from God, but the word of God. What does this mean? Well, the word, word, and even the way we still use it today can can be the ultimate expression of who a person is. So we use the term, I gave you my word. And that doesn't just mean I said something to you, but it means I, 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 I let you bet on me on my character, on my reputation, who I am as a person. Words express who we are. That's why charades is difficult for some of us, for all of us, maybe. At least it is for me. 
It's hard to get other people to know what we're thinking when we can't use words. If you've ever played the game Taboo, you know how frustrating that is. Because it lets you use words, but not the words that you, that you need to use, right? Words express us. Now, and you know the difference uh, you know, between uh, knowing who a celebrity is and meeting a celebrity, right? We all know who celebrities are. But if you, if you tell someone, I've met a celebrity, what that means is you were in the same space with them and you exchanged words with them and they looked at you and talked to you. And, and because you got a word from them, because they actually expressed themselves, you can say, I know this person, I've, I've met this person. Our word represents who we are. So God the Son, who would come to earth as Jesus, in the person of Jesus, is then the ultimate expression of who God is. Do you, do you see this? Do you see the implications of this? If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. Not just because Jesus is God, but because Jesus has expressed God. Jesus is called the Word, unlike the Father and unlike the Spirit. Now, the Father is God and the Spirit is God, but only Jesus took on a human body and a human nature and walked among us. Only Jesus came and lived a perfect life as one of us. He's not only God, he is also God, fully expressed so we can know him. That's why John says that we saw him, we, we touched him, he says in, in his, his first letter. And, and here's what John is telling us. If you want to know God, if you want to go, not, not know about God, we all know about God. But if you want to know God, here's the radical claim of Christianity. You have to encounter Jesus. You have to encounter Jesus. There's some pretty big implications to this, isn't there? The Bible teaches us that God has given us general revelation so that there are some things we know about God. Now, Romans 1 says we repress those things in our sin And the deeper we go into sin, apart from faith in Christ, the more we're going to repress them. But we know a couple things about God. We know that he exists, unless we've repressed that in our heart. We know that he's holy. Paul even goes so far to imply in Romans 1 that we even know that we have to give an account to him, that this God who's made us is going to judge us. He stands over us, as it were, and we have to answer to him for how we live our lives. So there are some things we know about God, but John is saying you can't really know God or have a relationship with God or be brought into a friendship with God apart from Jesus Christ. So what do you do if you don't know God? Well, I mean, if you're here at church and you don't know God, that's a start. It's good to have Christian friends. It's good to read your Bible. It's good to listen to sermons. But if you're not sure that you know God, the thing that you need to do most is listen to Jesus. You need, you need to listen to Jesus even more than you need someone's presentation of the gospel. And you listen to Jesus by listening to his words, by reading or studying a gospel with somebody, maybe a Christian friend of yours, and reading through and asking them questions and listening to Jesus for yourself. You see, if you want to know God, you have to know Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate expression of who God is. But there's more here. 
how is Jesus the Word? How does Jesus reveal God? Well, that's verse 14. Number two, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. It would not be enough for us if the Son was God, right? Now, that, that's the Trinity, and that's, that's important, but it's only important. We only know that because Jesus came and revealed it to us. God the Son being God, God the Son being the Word is not enough for us to know God. It's not enough for us to be saved. So what happened? He was made flesh. He came in a baby. And that's what we remember during Christmas. The divine became human while remaining divine. God became man while remaining to be God. This is hard to swallow. It's very hard to swallow. Now, now because of our bent today, Often what's most, hard, what's most difficult for people to swallow is that Jesus was God. It's agreed virtually, uh, universally now, and it wasn't always, but now it's universally agreed pretty much that Jesus uh, of Nazareth was a real human person who lived and uh, was crucified uh, during the first century. That's not hard for people to swallow. What's hard for people to swallow now is that he could also be divine. But that's not the problem that people had in the first century. And if you look at all the the first heresies that cropped up in the early church, a lot of them had to do with Jesus' humanity. And if you go read 1 John, John says, like, basically, his biggest mark of non-Christians or heretical teachers is that they deny Jesus came truly every way in the flesh. They they believed he was God. It was hard for them to swallow, though, that that God would really take on flesh. You may have trouble with both. Whatever the case, this is what John is saying about Jesus, and this is also what Jesus claimed about himself. I hope you can, can kind of understand why so many uh, people in, in, in the ancient world had trouble with this idea of Jesus, uh, of Jesus being truly man. Because if God becomes man, that means God would make himself vulnerable, doesn't it? If God became became man, that would mean that he would not only be vulnerable, but that he would be be betrayable, that he would be hurtable. And as we remember during Passion Week, that he would become killable. it's, It's been suggested that this this. Uh, this fear of vulnerability, this fear of being in a position to be hurt is, is one of the driving forces for bystander effect. If you're familiar with bystander effect, it describes people that watch and do nothing while someone right in front of them is being robbed or assaulted or even killed. They see it They even identify as good, caring, empathetic people. But when there's a large crowd, they feel like their obligation is kind of distributed because there's so many people, they don't want to get involved. And it's called the bystander effect. Someone is in need. Someone is in danger. Someone is being hurt. Someone has no hope and is threatened. But People, even, even self-identified, morally upstanding, good people, will stand back and not do anything. Why? Because of the fear of vulnerability. They don't want to get hurt. Verse 15. 
They don't want to get their hands in somebody else's problem. They don't want to become vulnerable. So it's quite possible that if you get yourself into trouble and there's a large crowd of people, you can lose your life surrounded by self-identified good people because we as humans don't want to take responsibility if it makes us vulnerable. It terrifies us. But here's the message of Christmas. God became vulnerable. Isn't this the picture of the Good Samaritan? God was willing to get his hands dirty, even if it meant being in such a place where it would harm himself. God became hurtable in our time of need, in our time of harm that we brought onto ourselves, in our time of danger that we brought onto ourselves by our sin, in our time of being threatened, in our time of being without hope, God got his hands dirty. He wasn't a bystander. That's what Christmas is about, you see. That, that God got his hands dirty in the, in, the, in the greatest way possible by taking on human flesh, by walking among us, and ultimately by going to his death in our place. God not only became vulnerable, but in becoming vulnerable, God also felt our pain. He felt our pain. Now, you, you could be here tonight and you could think, well, um, there's a lot of my friends and a lot of people that tell me, hey, I know what you're going through, I understand. And obviously, people shouldn't say stuff like that, right? It hurts because you know they don't understand. Even if they've went through a similar thing, they, they're not you. They've never walked in your shoes. And, and when we go through suffering, when we go through hardship, and we feel alone and isolated and hurting, it's frustrating when people tell us, I know what it's like, because they really don't. But if you're a Christian, what this means is that you are in a relationship with someone who could always say, I know what you're going through. This is the point the author of Hebrews is making in Hebrews chapter 2, where it says that Jesus our priest, is able to comfort those who suffer because he suffered. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him, or it was fitting for him, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. I, notice what's going on here. The author of Hebrews is not appealing to God's omniscience to say that he can comfort you. Maybe sometimes we do that. The author of Hebrews, who's writing, by the way, to um, a, a mixed group, some were Christians who were being faithful, others were Jewish Christians that were kind of backing off the fence and wondering about this whole Jesus thing. But, but the whole context of that is they were going through immense suffering. And the author of Hebrews does not tell them, hey, you know what, God knows everything, he knows what you're going through, he knew before it happened you would go through this, so just plug along. He specifically appeals to Jesus' suffering to comfort them. His point is not that God is aware of your suffering, so take courage. His point is that Jesus has already endured your suffering. Our God is not a God who just knows 
about what you're going through. But whatever you're going through, he in some way has felt that himself in Jesus. That is the God that we worship. Not a God who just understands intellectually your pain or your failure. But a God who's felt all of the terrible feelings that a sin-cursed world can throw at you. It was fitting, he writes, that Jesus would take on our humanity so he could experience all of the trouble that came with it. Hey, are you tired? Are you tired? Not just tired of the sermon, but are you tired, like in life? Tired of your job, tired in your relationship, tired of trying to, to raise godly kids where it's like one step forward, two steps back? Tired of your limitations? Tired of your boss? Hey, Jesus got tired. Feeling fatigue? Jesus felt fatigue. Have you ever been betrayed? Or someone had your confidence? They, you thought they had your back? You thought they could never do, anything, uh, never do anything to hurt you? You thought they had some sense of loyalty to you? Or you even thought you were their, they were your best friend and they betrayed you? Now, you, you, may, you may say, man, it feels like no one around me understands that. And that's totally possible. It's totally possible that no one around you does understand that. But Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows. Suffering through physical pain? Physical pain that is so daunting and so, uh, so it's so bad that even waking up in the morning, you think, man, I just wish I could, I wish I wouldn't have wake, woken up quite yet because I'm tired of this chronic pain. And I just want it to stop. Jesus dealt with physical pain. Suffering rejection. People that once accepted you now turn their back and they no longer accept you. You no longer feel invited. You're no longer in the circle. You're no longer appreciated. Jesus was rejected. He was rejected. Now, you you may hear all this and you say, yeah, I get it, David. I've heard this before. This is the classic uh, sermon. Jesus knows all my pain, therefore I'm supposed to go to God and trust him and believe and everything is going to be okay. But I tried that and it didn't work. My marriage sucked and I went to God and he didn't help it. I have clinical depression and I went to God and he didn't change anything. In fact, I feel like God has abandoned me, that he doesn't hear my prayers, that he doesn't listen to me, that he is not even there. So none of this stuff that you're saying is really a comfort to me. But listen, listen. The message of Christmas, because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done, if you look at his cry on the cross, listen, even Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Even Jesus knows what that's like to feel as if his father is not there to help him. 
You may think it's sacrilegious to feel that. You may think you're way past hope because you feel that. You may think there's nothing more unchristian in the world than this feeling that you've had. It even makes you feel guilty that God has left you alone. But even Jesus felt that. Even God, this is the, the most remarkable thing about Christianity, that even our God knows what it feels like to be abandoned by God. He knows. There's a story of a farmer who is in his house during a very cold winter, and some sparrows come up to his come up to his door, and they're pecking at it because they're cold and they're trying to get in the house. Well, he doesn't want them in the house for obvious reasons. So he goes out to his barn. He leaves like a little trail of crackers, so they'll follow him. He goes out to his barn. He uh, opens it up. It's nice and warm. He has a little corner with some food for the birds. He tries to get them to go in. They won't go in. He tries again. He goes outside. They come to his door. They peck at the door. But when he goes outside to try to get them into the barn, they won't follow him. They're scared. So they, they fly away. And the farmer thinks, if I could, if I could just be, become one of them, then I would be able to help them. This is what God has done for us. The only way for God to help us, the only way for God to save us, the only way for God to redeem us was if he could suffer in our place as one of us. And so he did. So he did. If you think the idea of a man becoming a, becoming a sparrow is silly and dumb and humiliating and awful, then we can't even begin to conceive of what it would be like for God to condescend and take on himself a human body and flesh and existence. But he did. Not only did the word become flesh, number three, the word came to be with us. The word came to be with us. Because the word was made flesh, he, John says this in verse 14. He did this so he could dwell among us and we beheld his glory. The word dwelt among us. Uh, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, Don Carson notes that the word... Um, for dwelled is the, is the same Greek word in the Greek Old Testament uh, that meant the tabernacle, setting up a tabernacle, which is what Moses did uh, with the Israelites uh, in order for them to experience a very limited taste of God's presence. And the idea of the tabernacle was this, um, and later the temple. Uh, in this room, within a larger room, within this building, within a courtyard, uh, one person, one time a year, can go into this place and they can be in God's presence. And that's how I'll mediate, uh, God is saying, that's how I'll mediate my presence with my people. John is saying something remarkable here. Jesus has set up his tabernacle with us when he came in his flesh. In other words, Jesus is the new tabernacle. Jesus is the new temple. Not just a different tabernacle, not just a different temple, but the true one, the one they were pointing to. The author of Hebrews says that, that the designs of the old were pointing to something heavenly. That is speaking of Jesus himself. Not a heavenly building, but a heavenly person. 
When Jesus came, he brought God's presence with him. Not a place where we could go once a year if you're the high priest. No. And, and, and didn't that part of the story always seem just a little bit odd? Right? This, this God that the Israelites worship is the creator of all the universe. He's made everything. And, and if you want to be in his presence, well, it, most everybody can't any, all, all of the time because our sin, of course, would separate us from him. But Jesus... Jesus changes all of that because when the Messiah comes, when sin has been atoned for, when he gives himself for us, God's glory is no longer confined to a room. God's presence is no longer confined to some dark room in the Middle East. It's in Jesus and in his spirit that he sends to all those who believe on him. The incarnation means that All that the tabernacle and temple were pointing to has finally arrived. God's presence, not mediated in some temporary building, not mediated in a tent, but God's presence itself in a person, in Jesus. See, we have this imaginary conversation between a a pagan and a Christian in the first century. Uh, Tim Keller gives us this example of what that conversation may have looked like. The pagan neighbor comes up to the Christian and says, oh, I've heard about Christianity, a new religion. I love religions, the pageantry, the sacrifices, the priests, the temples, and knowing that the deities are pleased with us. So tell me, Christian, where is your temple located? I've not seen it. And uh, the Christian says, we don't have a temple. Christ is our temple. The neighbor says, okay. Well, if you don't have a temple, then where do the priests operate? I mean, where do your priests do your thing, do, do the thing and make the sacrifices so your God is, is happy with you? Where, where do they do that if you don't have a temple? And the Christian says, we don't have priests. Christ is our priest. Well, if you don't have priests, the neighbor says, now indignant, what in the world are you supposed to do with your sacrifices? And what are the altars for? The Christians say we don't have sacrifices and we don't have altars because Jesus is our sacrifice and we have nothing else to offer God. And then the neighbor says, what kind of religion is this? And the Christian says, it's not like any other religion at all. You see, other religions always say, live right and God will take care of you. Do the right thing. You'll manipulate the God's favor. They'll do what you want them to do. Christianity says that God, it doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. He, at infinite cost, has come down and given us the life that we could have never earned on our own. It is not us trying to be with God. It is God coming to be with us. There is a distance between God and and man, but Jesus has come to close that distance. Now, if you're not a, if you're not a Christian, this basically means that um, the whole message of Christmas is an opportunity for you to respond to this good news, to this message, to this person. The story of Christmas is an invitation for you to make a decision about what you are going to do with this Jesus. And if that happens to be where you're at, then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But for those of us who do know Jesus, this message is just as important. You see, because Jesus has come and 
uh, because Jesus has bridged this distance that separated us from God, it means that God, though he is holy and though he is our creator and though we can never please him on our own and though he hates sin, this God is now accessible to us, that we can know him, that we can be in his presence, that we can, we can bow every morning and pray and say stuff to him, even stuff that doesn't make any sense, and he listens to it. It means that when we cry for help, he hears us. It means that when we're worshiping him, even on a bad day, and even maybe when we, when we don't feel like it, he still accepts that and is pleased by it because we know his son, because we know the word. You feeling hurt today? Run to Jesus. Are you feeling disappointed today? Run to Jesus. You feeling betrayed? Misunderstood? Lonely? Left out? Discouraged? Disappointed in other people? Run to Jesus. Christmas is a celebration, but it's more than that. It's an invitation, an invitation to come to the Jesus that has saved us. In Jesus, we have, miraculously, God himself in every way, and yet, a person who's experienced all the discomfort that drives us to despair, a person who has felt our pain in deeper ways than we will know. In Jesus, we have the one who represents God's strength perfectly, and yet, somehow, incredibly, the one who identifies with all of our weaknesses as well. The message of Christmas is that God is no longer hidden because he can be known in Jesus. If you know Jesus, he is present to you. He is with you. He is listening for you. He loves you. The word has come, and we can know him. And if you do know him, if you know him already, listen, you can go to him at any time. You can go to him at any time. So whatever you need to come to Jesus for tonight, why don't you do that? Why don't you talk to him? He's listening because God is with us.